This is a Salt Hill Media original podcast. Hello, welcome to the Ireland podcast. This is Fender Jackson. This week's guest is a multi-award winning chef, restaurateur, business owner, founder, father, playwright, and all that stuff, Mr. or sorry, Dr. JP McMahon. Because this man is so multifaceted, the conversation therefore is as well. Warning, we talk about performance art. So that obviously means that we talk about things that are quite graphic in a graphic way. Although the language that we use is biological or correct or, you know, the right words, the right terms, some of the themes in this podcast might be quite adult. Anyway, I should flag this at the front because a lot of people might be offended because that's their priority nowadays. Good job that Billy Connolly came around at the time that he did. That's all I have to say about that one. So we talk about performance art and we talk about playwriting. He's a bit of a playwright. And also we talk about his staged performance and his life as a restaurateur and his Michelin star, how he got it. That's a fascinating part of the conversation. And JP talks about the challenges that he faces in getting seasonal ingredients that are Ireland grown and the state of farming in Ireland today. We close the conversation paying tribute to our mutual friend, Mr. John Ryan. John actually didn't have a hand in setting this interview up. I knocked JP's door. Well, actually, I just rocked up to the restaurant and he agreed to it kind of agreeable man that he is. JP talks about his love of Samuel Beckett and he's actually recorded some Beckettian poems which I will include in the bio and he also has two restaurants in Galway. One's called Cava, the other one is An Ear, spelled A-N-I-A-R. Okay, so let's go to that chat. Band, wrap it up. I'm Phil Coulter, and you're listening to the Ireland Podcast. Hello, who are you and what do you do? My name is JP McMahon, and I am a chef in Galway. So you say chef. However, you're also a restaurateur, an author, a playwright, a founder, a businessman. And what else? Uh, father, I'm not too sure. Do I? I suppose I don't collect the things that I do. So yeah, I'm uh, I'm multi multifaceted. Um, I think sometimes it's easier to call yourself what your um what your occupation is. But um, I'm very much of the opinion that we're uh, we're multi dimensional people. So I think that uh, we're always more than than just one thing. So let's start off with your first one, the chef. Yeah. How did you get into that? Um, I started cooking when I was fifteen. Um, I think I think the year, the year after my junior cert. Um, and I had done a bit of home economics. I kind of liked cooking and took a job in an Italian restaurant in Maynooth uh, called Donatello's. And yeah, just kind of loved it. It was a um run by this guy called Tony who was from Naples and I suppose I liked that um, foreignness of food The I think there was a romantic aspect to it as well I mean when you compared it with uh, Irish food of the of the like 1980s particularly that I grew up in kind of 
dull, a little bit boring. And then you're introduced to Italian food, colourful, warm. Um, and yeah, I kind of took to it. And like I, I, I was kind of chefing on and off until, um, I suppose, until I opened Cava in 2008. Like the, I was always cooking, but then I always had a love of a kind of literature and philosophy and different stuff. So I, I had always the the idea to go back uh, to college as a mature student. I had kind of like decided that, I don't know when I decided that, but kind of 16 or 17. I, I kind of knew I wasn't going to go to college when I finished school. I wasn't the most academic um I had a, a terrible leaving cert. Um, so I always say, like, there's hope for anyone. Like, if I got, I think I got 250 points in my leaving cert, so I was like, listen, it's it's uh, it's just a marker. And, yeah, I went, I, I moved to Galway um, in 1999. Um, so you're, you're from Minnesota originally? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm as I was, as I was kind of difficult to, to define, I was, I was born in Clendalkin, um and we, I, I grew up in Maynooth. I think I was in Maynooth from about four to 17. So yeah, my formative years are, are, are in Maynooth, um, but when asked, I'm always from Dublin. I just, mm-hmm. yeah, I just, uh, I couldn't be from Kildare, even though my older brother tells me he's from Kildare, but he's even more, was uh, more time in Dublin uh, than I did, but um, I st- I just have an affinity with Dublin um, culturally, and also both my uh, well, one grandparent was Bray, and the other one was um, Salorgan Marion area, and yeah, it's just that um, cultural affinity with Dublin that I think that uh, that I have, and and also because I'm interested in in Dublin in terms of its uh, literary history as well, so I think that's what. Um, defines me in that way and I suppose I I spent a few years kind of wandering between 96 and 99 I went to Paris and um, uh, with kind of notions of staying there and uh, came back didn't last very long uh, traveled around a bit and um, then uh, I moved to Galway in 99 pretty much just a a lot of the people that um, I was friends with were, were finishing college that year and they were kind of d- dispersing and uh, quite a few were moving to Galway. Some had been before and I suppose I just um, took a chance and I had been to Galway once before um, and I moved up for the summer and then I took a job in uh, Fat Freddy's KPing at first and then uh, I suppose I, I told them I, like, I did a bit of chefing when I was younger and then I started chefing again and I, I did that um, for a couple of years. We, myself and uh, Drigine, um, moved to um, moved to Edinburgh for a year we both of us kind of chef there. We were both interested in in, in restaurants. Um, and then we came back. That was, I think it was 20, 21 or 22 at that stage. And I had kind of, that was when I said, look, I, I want to go to college. And um, I had been in, interested in writing and English and, and, and philosophy and done a lot of kind of, um, self-education, just, just reading myself. And um, what did you study in college? A, I studied, um, English and art history and I did, uh, philosophy and French in, in, in first year. And then I just, um, uh, specialized in English and art history. And then ironically, even though, um, I, um, uh, English was probably my, uh, better subject. I, after finishing the degree, I decided to do a, a master's in art history and, and, and a PhD. So I started that process in 2005. And what happened was we wanted to move out of Cork. We didn't really know where we wanted to go. And um, I suppose Galway was always that place where I suppose we had returned to a number of times already. 
and decided to move back to Galway and I would just do the PhD remotely. So, um, and I think that's uh, like, it was, I suppose, a turning point in the return to cooking because I suppose I needed money. I was teaching one day a week in, in Cork and just driving down on Tuesdays and, 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 uh, and teaching in art history in the, in the university. And I started cooking again, went back to Fat Freddy's and ended up taking over the head chef position and became more and more involved in food. And I suppose a divergence began between my academic side and, and my chef side. And I always found it really hard to reconcile them. And so I, I continued both. Um, and then we, um, about 2008, we, we opened Cava, myself and Driggin. We had, we got, we had got married. I'm sorry to jump in here. Please. Yeah, that's fine. So master's, what did you study in your master's? And what did you study in your PhD? So I did a, I did a master's in art history. And what I did was naively if anyone's out there listening i i transferred after you after i so i was doing an mphil sorry i transferred after one year to do a phd which i subsequently never finished a phd in art history that went on for for many years it nearly went on for 10 years because we what happened was we got married we opened up cava we opened up a near we had two kids um, our firstborn was um, Heather was born with cancer. She spent a year in in Crumlin, um, and so there was quite it was quite a turbulent time. And I was always trying to just tip away at the at the PhD. And what happened then in um, twenty fifteen um, was I just decided. I said, you know what, this is this has been dragging on too long, and I was deferring it. And and I said, you know, I'm just gonna. Uh, just kind of leave it. And I said, I'll just come back to doing a PhD at a, at a later date. Um, because it was, um, I had just felt they had gone so far apart what I was trying to do with art history and what I was doing in, in terms of cooking. And actually we had three restaurants at that stage <laughs> oh God. and an outside catering. And it was just, yeah. It was, oh, it was, what was your PhD in? The Pete was on Vito Acconci, so he's this Italian, he's passed away now, but um, Italian performance artist. So it was American art of the 60s and 70s. So quite political, quite turbulent. Uh, it was on specifically on performance and conceptual art. And um, Can you explain a little bit about what his style yeah. was? Acconci was very, his most famous work is, um, is in 1972. It's called Seedbed, and he lay under the floor of a gallery and masturbated all day with a microphone and was calling out profanities in the gallery and people were walking over him and all you could hear was his voice and so he was this extreme performance artist his other famous piece was called following piece where he followed people around new york um and and documented it until they went into a private location so sometimes he would follow people for hours because they never went into a private location and so he was kind of uh, very interested in uh, not only identity, but also the body, um, um, the, the physical, the erotic, all these kind of elements. And uh, I was looking at his, his work from Justice Period. He had started as a poet and then he had gone into, gravitated towards doing physical performances with words and then he's gravitated to just doing um uh, physical very physical work and doing photography and um um film as well he did a lot of super eight um super eight films that were always very kind of self-reflexive and that and so i was looking at his work from 67 to 74 from that kind of transition from 
being a being a poet to being a performer. And uh, can I ask? So, performance art. It's whenever I think of performance art, two two guys comes to mind. One is Gilbert and George, who yeah. famously stood in a box, yeah. and uh, they were the art. Yeah, I think they were. They were feeling a bit snubbed by the art world and decided to gate crash and yeah. become art pieces for that uh, event. And then the other one that more recently has come to mind is Franco B. Have you heard? Yeah, of him? I know Franco B. Um, I, uh, and actually, I saw and and like I sometimes I think what like what I what I what a Conchi did in the seventies is is so like mild when you think of Franco B. If like because Franco B. is very much about fluid and blood and just some. Ab- <laughs> He stood on a on a on a I think it was a white sheet and actually had his wrists cut. Yeah. One of my tutors from university went to see it and she was disappointed that there wasn't more blood happening. Yeah, it's, he's very ritualistic and I went, he he did an exhibition when I was um, when I was in in Cork and actually he sat on like a Judas chair, which is a, a um, it was a medieval torture device. It's mm-hmm. um. It's pretty much like a, the top of a top of a, um, uh, a diamond. It's like a, it's like a three D triangle. If that's if that I don't know what 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 shape that is. He sat on it and that was uh, in his anus. And then he read I don't know what he read the Bible or something. I don't know what he read. And of course there was blood and bits and so like, it's very very extreme. But I, I interviewed a Conchi a few times. Went to New York and I did a lot of uh, stuff on his archive and. Um, he, he he jokingly said um like that he had uh what did he said he said oh in, he said in 1972 he, he he masturbated under the floor of a gallery and he said uh he said i was late he said uh, they were making love in the street in 69 he said like uh, like I, he was like he, he very much saw his his art as being a product of his time and actually he did a soundtrack very interestingly to his work and he became an architect in in the end in before um before he died and he had gone from doing very from being a poet like being a very kind of insular thing you're writing in your own room to going into a gallery uh then to to using his body as a performance then to working into installations and then gravitating towards building things and he had a soundtrack that started with kind of neil young as a kind of singer songwriter and he said he saw his work in performance in that genre and then it went up through electronic music that became more and more complex that needed more and more people and in the end like Vito Conchi had turned into a Conchi studio and he had loads and loads of uh, guys working with him designing these crazy buildings like one of his proposals for the new twin towers was this these skyscrapers full of holes and um, and he said, like, well, of course they didn't want his thing. Uh, uh, it was, but it, they were very kind of biomorphic holes. The, the building was sculpted into holes as a, as a kind of remembered event. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but he had done stuff as well, uh, like he uh, he built a skate park and this really he did a very interesting piece in in Vienna, which is an island. Um, in the middle of a river that you, it's like a concentric, it, it turns and you, you walk on from different ways. And so he was very interested in the landscape and the environment and the way your environment, um, uh, shapes you. And there's elements of that, um, that have, 
drifted into what we do in an ear and uh, and what how I'm interested in that. So, like, uh, even though people always say like you spent nearly ten years doing a PhD and you never finished it, like I was like, I mean, a PhD is is sometimes about the the object and sometimes it's about the the process. And I think learning how to write um, and teaching were very formative practices that I ended up using um, when I, I suppose, eventually immersed myself completely in the culinary world. Because I teach now, I teach a lot of, um, uh, I've got a cooking class um, this evening, um, and I'm not formally trained as a chef, you know. Um, so it's it's that kind of attitude that um, that leaks in and, and the, the cookbooks that I've written and the, the columns and that I've written, like all of that, that process, was learned through a different discipline. And that's why, I mean, I, I, I think I'm very interested in the the, the interdisciplinary and the, the cross between different elements because there's always that. It's I think it's where the most interesting elements are what's happening between restaurants and music or, or literature and performance and all that that kind of between space is is um is what is what I'm interested in and and eventually I did get back I was so annoyed at myself in 2015 or 2016 this is while I was setting up food in the edge um which is another massive uh, event but that I went back and did a master's in English because I was just annoyed that a I had never got my master's because I had transferred and b hadn't done my PhD so I did a master's in English so you did your PhD first and then you went back and did then your I went master's. back and do my I, I did didn't finish one PhD and then I went back and I said I'm going to have to get this piece of paper so I went back and did a master's in English in 2016 and did you f- you finished your PhD yeah. then as well yeah I only finished my PhD um, just after COVID um, oh. and that was in drama and I suppose it was a way of bringing together but I thought your PhD wasn't uh, the performance artist. No, because I, I never finished. I never oh. finished it. Yeah, I, I, I. So you're gonna finish that's in your bucket list to do? Oh, I don't know if I'll ever. Uh, I have, I have a uh, hundred thousand words or something shell, or it's in the computer somewhere on that. And uh, I think when I was when I was trying to finish um, the 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 first PhD, like uh, I suppose a tension arose in the department um, about what I, I and i think it, we're, we're more accepting now and this is only 10 years ago or or so that like what are you okay you're running restaurants and you're doing this like what's the purpose why are you doing this mm. and i think that uh, while i was so busy with this it's just uh, it was always the elephant in the room like it was like well is uh, is this restaurant thing is is that your main objective or is the, is the PhD your main objective? And like I was working towards an in-between position. So I, I think just the where I was at that time, I, I wasn't going to become an art historian. And I think that was one of the the tensions that arose in um, with the department and just kind of like what I was doing this for. And I felt that we were growing apart. And that's why when I went back and did the master's and um, in English, and again, I had uh, always liked English. I did I did a couple of modules in um, in playwriting and I'd always been I had always been writing plays. I've been writing plays since as long as I remember, maybe 97, 98, and I've never done anything with them. I've just always been interested, a big Beckett fan, a big fan of French theatre in the... And what, fifth, what style would you describe your plays as? Like, they're, 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 they're quite, I'd say they're quite Beckettian, but they're also, there's also an influence of the absurd. I mean, I very much like absurdist theatre. Um, and But they're also then, there's an Irish element, I think, because that, that, that I... That kind of narrative, the storytelling aspect, um, 
So playwrights such as like Marina Carr or Tom Murphy or Brian O'Friel or all these different Irish playwrights. I mean, I've I've, I've seen their work and I, and I really like it. But I suppose I I go back to the the minimalism of 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 Beckett sometimes and that kind of paired back um, situations where there is some sort of unknown trauma or existential kind of angst that 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 kind of um uh tap that, that kind of element is 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 uh, is always there but they're 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 quite absurd the humor is quite black um and um i've only produced one um in in my in my entire entire time and that was when so when i finished my master's i was like what am i going to do my phd on and i was thinking like i don't want to start another phd that is um wholly theoretical in terms of just writing a big thesis. So I, I went to the department and I, I, I kind of researched this um, um, other style of PhD, which is um, a practice-based PhD, which a lot of artists do. Uh, it can be, so you you do a body of work and you can, be, you can do a body of music, a body of painting, a body of sculpture. And so I decided to say, oh, I want to do a PhD on play, in playwriting. And uh, we still had no idea of how this was. We were going to do this, um, and myself and my my supervisor. And we spent the first year um, kind of uh, working away, and, and it developed into this play called Irish Food, a play that I wrote and and put on um, as put on first as part of my um, um, put it on as first as part of my my PhD. In, in the university and then we put on a professional production in the Dublin Fringe Festival in 2019 and then the whole PhD revolved around this play and I suppose the question was like what happens when you stage food what happens when you bring food into a theatre and how does that kind of disrupt the idea of theatre itself and and what's the difference between I don't know killing a lobster in a restaurant and giving it to people and killing a lobster in a theatre. Well, one of the big differences is you can't kill a lobster in a theatre. You're just not allowed. Like, you just cannot bring a lobster on stage and kill it. Because, Can you smoke in a theatre? Um, that's It's an interesting point. Most of the time you can't. There's, there's some exceptions, but mo- nearly all the time now, it's... It's about representation. It's not about presentation. And that was the, I had kind of gone into the theatre with my performance art head and mind going, well, sure, anything's possible. We can do whatever we want. We can walk into the theatre and rip the arms and legs off lobsters and like eat them raw. And they were like, hold on a second. None of that is happening. Like, and I was like, what do you mean? We're all like artists. We're liberal. We're like, we can do what we want. It's the arts. And they were like, absolutely not. They were like, nothing is going to die in here. And you were just about to say the reason why you can't do it. So do you want to explain that? Yeah. The reason why you can't is, is that I suppose theater is not a space where things happen. Literally things happen it's it's illusionary or things happen like and you mentioned smoking like it's or drinking like people don't usually it happens it has happened on occasions in tom murphy plays i think on conversations on the homecoming when they're drinking and they once were said what would happen if we were actually drinking pints what would happen to the play and of course it was an absolute mess because they just <laughs> got drunker and drunker and so yeah you you don't drink you don't really drink and and so that was the tension um in the play was that well, how do you Put on. How do you put food in the theatre and 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 discuss its implications, whether they're implications for Irish history or identity politics or um, environmental or ecological issues? How do you discuss those issues 
uh, and not break the the fourth wall. And uh, there was just really interesting uh, things that we realized. Um, and then I started to notice in other performances where, like, the, we went to see the three Lady Gregory plays in, in this is one while I was writing. It was in, in during COVID. And they were actually on in the quad. And they had, like, a real loaf of brown bread that they were cutting and sharing amongst um, uh, the performers in this scene, but then they had a big. Uh, there was a um, a call for um, a sheep to be hung up, and it was just a big plastic sheep. And I was like, like, why isn't why why would you make why is the brown bread real and the sheep fake? And of course, the simple answer is that well, I sure it's really easy just to bake a loaf of bread. It's not going to offend anyone. And I was like, well, like what would happen if the sheep was real and you hung it there? And then I thought, well, look, the play is from 1905, and they didn't have plastic sheep in 1905. So then I went into the archive in NUI, and the stage directions just say a sheep hanging there. So you have to assume that in 1905 it was a real sheep, and they and that brings in a whole pile of issues like smell and touch and these things that we that nowadays in the theater we don't want like it's like the first thing when i brought in a dead duck it was like what's the protocol for that and i was like what do you mean a protocol it's just a dead duck and they were like all that we're like what's it going to touch like is there diseases attached to it and like have you got like a bottle of sanitizer to spray down anything that it touches and all these issues that i suppose i hadn't thought about when i thought about oh, I'll just bring food into the theater because it's in the restaurant and you just take it for granted um and it's I'm not the only person to to do um to investigate this and there's been plenty of others and I suppose what I found with the PhD um in a roundabout way it was a way to bring back the academic side of me and the culinary side of me because the art history one had just gone two ways the art history went this way uh, and cooking went this way and it, it was a way to bring the, the, the I suppose the three aspects the, one is the kind of academic side of me the other is the, the kind of creative playwright and the other is a, as a chef and I was able to bring those three things together and then produce this this um, this performance and write a write a thesis and um um and and finally get a phd for what i like i don't know and i still now i'm going how did i even do that and why like i don't yeah when i look at it i had to get it printed because in the it was in the age of covid so nothing was printed so it was just digital you just send over your phd and you get your phd and i said i need to print this thing just to have it on the shelf there just to know that it's an actual thing that i wrote um but yeah it was fun and it, it, it influenced the way that we think about food in the restaurant and the kind of how theatre impacts the restaurant. Uh, like the restaurant is always a theatrical space um, and um, and ways in which we can um, augment the the space of the 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 restaurant space or the or the or the um the, the the customer's experience and like one simple way of that is is and i know it sounds absolutely like um too simplistic is that we serve a poem about bread by brendan Kennelly with our bread and the poem is actually quite sexually charged it's about a woman making bread and uh, opening the dough loaf and uh, and about life and um 
uh, and that and people so I it's and it's I don't put it there for any any intended consequences in terms of I, I just love the way it, it changes the subtly changes the experience of eating bread like sometimes it makes no difference I mean sometimes the people are eating and they go oh look it's a palm bread bread I'm not, I won't even read it but then sometimes people read it aloud if there's a table of four and it's 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 just it's a it's a tiny little aspect of the meal that I think that 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 idea came out of like that when when you put words and poetry and performance and food all that together um and even something as something as another thing is as simple as the music i always struggled with the music in the restaurant because like we were a michelin star restaurant we played everything from classical music to god knows what like something that tried to fit the food it was like what 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 is the music of the restaurant and the food is intensely um local and I was like, we should play Irish music, but we can't play the kind of diddly eye kind of thing. That doesn't make any sense. Like that, the kind of, the pubs have kind of taken over that. And uh, it was only during COVID, um, when I was writing the PhD, that I, um, and I'm sure you know them, the the band, The Gloaming. Um, and I discovered that and I was like, do you know what? That, that sounds exactly like what we're trying to do with food. And ever since then, we've played it. We have a Gloaming playlist. It's not only The Gloaming, it's kind of bands that are similar. And it really makes the the whole experience more holistic and it and then it that but that amazingly that took 10 years you know and even though you, someone would say to me now oh yeah the gloaming's great uh, i could have told you about that but i was like i don't know how and we played we tried everything we tried irish electronic music we tried like bands i liked like david bowie or tom waits or, and it was just like this isn't working with this uh and then we tried the whole like um, fine dining always retreats to classical music. It always like if you think of Chef's Table on Netflix, it's always that kind of dramatic classical music. And I was like, this isn't. It sounds very French, you know. And so I it, that that aspect in in a, in and of itself was um, was two things that came out of, came out of the PhD. I don't know if you've ever heard of the poem by um, I think it's Kurt Schwitters or Sonata. No, I haven't. No, it, it's um, is I think it was recorded in nineteen twenties, and it's a German data is poet. And I know Schwitzer's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, he's just making random weird sounds like. But it's, you know, 1920s, I think it is, or maybe 30s, I can't remember. <laughs> but I was just thinking two things. Whenever you're talking about bringing theatre into the restaurant, did you have waiters chasing uh, some of the people around? Or the other thing was, could, did you have Ursinata but in Gaelic? Yeah, that's like, and, and you know what? I, 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 the, the first, the first art book I read after, um, after college, um, sorry, not after college, after school, because I did uh, art in school. I wasn't very good at drawing or anything like that. And, um, um, but the first book I read was, um, one of those Fidon books on dad and surrealism. And it really, that when you, it's interesting you mentioned sweaters because it's um, that kind of liberal liberation that happened when I read that book because I suppose I wasn't good at drawing and therefore you were like well I'm not a great artist and that introduction to dad it was like well you don't have to draw you can you can you can 
you can dress up as anything and just make nonsense noises. Uh, and uh, I were actually, it was Hugo Ball in the, it was in Zurich 1915, and he's this stupid suit on. He was reading this absolute nonsense poem. I think that aspects of that, I, I think, definitely got me uh, more into the kind of the creative side. Um, and it's also like I love photography as well. And um, I, 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 I use photography. I mean, and everyone uses it now since like um, social media and Instagram and that. Um, but I've, I, I was always conscious that what we were what we were doing needed to be needed to be documented not only in words but in images in in videos if you if you look at the near website there's a there's a there's a video into the west that that we try to make a small little micro movie on 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 what we do and because i just think yeah it, it, for me it's it's really important like documentation is really important for me and i don't know why it's not the kind of being interested in history whatever we do in the restaurant I always feel like we need to document this because because we need to create legacy. Like many, many restaurants or artists or musicians come and go and like what's left is their music or their art or even the fact that we're doing this podcast. Like these are these are like um, almost like markers in time, you know, and it's really important to try and capture times because when I think of my grandparents, I mean, uh, there was very little documentation. So I, I, there's aspects I know. And then you go back to my great-grandparents, there's nothing. There's no documentation. So I think it's it's something we take for granted now because all of social media is is one massive big archive, you know, and, yeah. and you kind of get buried in that. You get lost. Mm. Um, and I think I, I think it would be really interesting um, in the in the future if, if, if someone was to write a biography um, on me, I was like, because I was interested in biography, and I think of like, say, Beckett's biography, and like they had, um, they had no record, one recording of his voice. Who may tell the tale of the old man? Way absence in a scale, meet want with a span, the sum assess of the world's woes, nothingness in words and clothes. What will not abate one jot, but of what? Of the coming to, of the being at, of the going from, not habitat. Of the long way, of the short stay, of the going back home, the way he had come. Of the empty heart, of the empty hands, of the dim mind wayfaring through barren lands. Of a flame with dark winds hedged about, going out gone out of the empty heart of the empty hands of the dark mind stumbling through barren lands that is of what what will not abase one toss and it's just photographs and there are very few moving images so it's literally like it's letters and what he wrote and if you were to try and 
write a biography of someone now? I mean, what do you do? Do you do you contact Twitter and get the whole get every fifty thousand to fifty thousand tweets and Just then ask AI to do it? Too. Yeah, and what do you? How do you? Maybe that's the solution, or it's like it's because I'm like an absolute serial tweeter and serial Instagrammer. I might like put three photos a day, but like if you multiply that by twenty years, it was like how do you, how do you possibly understand that and and try and turn that into a life it's just really but i think twitter is very much different to the process within the the you know the self you know yeah. because you know the internal workings um i just googled it ursonata 1932 uh, it's really worth looking okay, up. okay cool, cool so you said there that you staged um one performance yes talk about that um well so we staged we staged two we staged one kind of unprofessional one in in the for for the phd and then we staged the second one and then we were due to stage a third one in and near march 2020 and then that all went to pot because covid uh, and that it's a pity i mean hopefully we'll go back to it because we were we had got ideas from along the way and even one was that we need original music we had put, you know, we, we, we the first one we had none. The second we we had a bit. We were we were just trying to find our feet, and we're like, we really need s- some special sounds for this. Um, so the first performance um, was done with my uh, myself actually in the performance and two others. And of course, I had a big pig, I had a pig mask on, like pure Francie Brady. Was oh, it a real boy. pig? No, 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 no. Oh, That's actually even even more macabre. Uh, no, it was just uh, and um, we had invited six of the performers, six sorry, six of the audience members to sit at this kind of kitchen table with a little light over it, and we had we had recorded the performance. Um, so I recorded the text, which is um, the only way to describe it. And it's very unlike the other plays that I've written. The other plays I've written, uh, many of the other plays I've written are very narrative in, in, in their, and character driven. There's like characters and that. There's, there's no characters in this play. It's literally three performers and they have words. And how I got those words was I did, um, um, I did a survey online um, on SurveyMonkey and I asked 10 questions about Irish food. I said, um, what's your first memory of Irish food? What do you remember? What did you eat growing up? Um, is uh, What do you feel the relationship between um, Irish and English food is? What do you feel the relationship between our, um, uh, religion and Irish food? De- like uh, 10 different questions. And I got back about, 300 and, about 330 responses. And what I did was like a very, very data-esque. I cut them all up. And, a la Bowie. and jumble them together. And Bowie actually, yeah, Bowie got that out of data as well. That kind of idea that you put it all into a hat and you start pulling out lines. And then what I did was, then I interspaced a load of my own memories and thoughts in between all that. So it's very hard to to distinguish between... And is it then just one long sentence? No, it's I broke it into three performers. So the three performers have, have lines. But, but, but there's... Uh, there's full stops and paragraphs. And no, stuff. there's not. There's okay. no. There's no punctuation at all. And initially, actually, eventually, the characters were called one, two, and three. Mm-hmm. So line one, they 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 were they went through different um, different names, but in the end, we just called them one, two, and three. Um, and it's it's like a stream of consciousness about Irish food and its uh, identity and cultural significance and lots of other things like. Um, uh, lots of other weird things like uh, there's there's a line um, 
Uh, and actually, this was quite reactionary. I remember we put it on and people were like, what? Like, there's a lot of talk about Catholics and Protestants. And because, like, I mean, ultimately, I found out from from the survey and also from from writing the, the cookbook is that, like, whether you were Catholic or Protestant growing up in Ireland um, uh, post-World War II, um, you ate very different things. Like, it wasn't the same diet. In fact, in some some extremes, it was like two different two different diets completely like it was it was one diet one diet of um of um like porridge and poverty and another of wild birds and venison and just these things that i had never had growing up i was like i was like we never ate wild we never ate like trout growing up and uh, you, you have these these people and of course not everyone who had trout was landed and that but there was this legacy of that if you were attached to land or to the anglo-irish this whole aspect of of um of having control over um the system of production like the the game and we you're you're on the other side of where you're growing up in an urban environment um and you don't have any of that you know so there was lots of jokes in in the play and catholics of course they didn't eat meat on fridays yes that and and there's, so there's lots of jokes um and um uh, actually, one guy who responded um, to uh, to the survey, and I actually left in the lines. It was some of them were very funny because he literally wrote after every single um, uh, every single question, he just wrote orange. Now I, I was like, what is he writing orange for? I didn't realize he was talking about the orange order. Yeah, and I was so he literally said he said like, what's what's your relationship, uh, or what do you think the relationship between um, Irish irish food and religion is and his line was oranges don't grow in ireland and i and i was like that's a brilliant line because like in and of itself oranges don't grow in ireland Mm. and that's a whole other whole other side of a thing about why we have to import fruit into this island and and i was thinking but on the other side is like he's having it's this political comment about Mm. the orange order newness so i left it in but in the play it, it it just sounds like Oranges don't grow in Ireland, mm. and but there's this whole back and forward thing, and about uh, the just um, uh, Catholics and Protestants, and um, uh, and then the the kind of sometimes the the sav- the the kind of savage nature of having to kill food, like whether it's cows or or that, also uh, um, mixing that up with the troubles, you know, and mixing that up with, so it, it, there's lots of that. And, and and some of the audience were like, what has that got to do with food? And I was like, sure, it's got everything to do with food. And because we still have that attitude in, in Ireland um, that food is one thing. Food is just like consumption. Food is like production, consumption, and then the rest of your life is something else. And we forget that that the way in which we eat and what we eat um, is, is speaks of our whole identity and uh, our cultural formation. Even as something as stupid as having flat seven up and ice cream when you were a kid, when you were sick, mm. like that whole the whole reason for that is 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 um, is very cultural and it's very complex. Um, so, and there's another line in the play where one of the performers says, um, "William Paddy Hitler." And they and, and people were saying, God, that's a what is that reference from? And um and is it like why and I'm not sure if someone if it was a response or was something I put in, but what it is is that one of Hitler's nephews lived in Ireland and his name was William Paddy Hitler. No uh, way. 100%. And he was part of the Dublin gentry. I, re- I read something post-war. 
Oh, I, well, yeah. I, I read William as, a, yeah. as an orange name. Orange name, yeah. Paddy's a Catholic name. Mm. And then William Paddy Hitler is, yeah. This, yeah, and that uh, that possibly is a whole, is another aspect of it. But this William Hitler yeah. um, was living in Dublin from after the war, eating the best of food, in the, involved in this. And I just thought that's such a weird thing. And so and I put it into the play and people were... Like, oh, like, literally, tr- they're like, "What has that? What has that got to do with food? I mean, what has Hitler got to do with food?" And I don't know, trying to explain to him that his nephew or whatever he was um, lived in Dublin quite happily and died in Ireland, and from the fifties up into the seventies, and he ate well, he ate very well, and while half the country was like starving still and having porridge for breakfast, and I thought like that's a, it's an interesting comment on even on the way in which we don't want to acknowledge things about whether it's on the influence of English food on Ireland or the way we're all really just mixed up together you know you've probably heard the saying tell tell 10% of the story and the audience will write the rest yeah yeah so what type of interpretations did you get back from your performance the the, the biggest one the was was uh was that kind of like why is there why is there mentions of religion and politics in the play because that has no rule that has no place in food and i was like of course when you sit down and talk to them then they go away thinking oh my god yeah it's so food is so political and of course food is very political food is so steeped in religious practice i mean you already mentioned about not eating meat on friday eating fish on a friday you have lent you have all these mm. these different things about food and the other one was the what we did during the play uh, particularly the one we put on the fringe festival was that when the the audience came in i was literally said customers and that was the whole breaking down <laughs> when the audience came in we we sat they're all seated seated at tables and there was food to eat like mixed up between the high and the low there was like tato crisps with oysters and seaweed and egg sandwiches and like absolutely absurd very very dada-esque um and then the, and did the audience get to choose where they sat yeah they just sat down and they just so you could have sat at the oysters table yeah and 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 people oh. started to eat and then interesting enough one person kind of complained and said I didn't get my oyster and I was like well I mean it's not a restaurant it's like I don't have a napkin and I was like you're not supposed to have a napkin this whole there was a breakdown between like we were in a restaurant mm. and people were going oh this is a restaurant I need I need cutlery and I was like you don't get cutlery and I was like well I should have cutlery and um, the, these kind of things that we had to I don't know if we ended up putting cutlery down because we just couldn't deal with kind of people complaining about the food when the thing was supposed to be at the, at the play and then the performers came out in this space the three performers um, and uh, did we had first three acts um, but actually interesting enough the, the lobster which which everyone ate um, uh, after Act Two was on this golden blanket because the actors wouldn't touch the lobster, and I, this this ended up writing a whole chapter on this that the actors were like, "I'm not touching it because it's a creature," and I was like, "You have to touch it; it's in the play." And they were like, "No, I don't. I have rights." I'm, I, and I was like, "I thought actors just did what was in the script, <laughs> and they they don't anymore. Not, uh, any, not anymore. Not anymore. Uh, you have to sign contracts, <laughs> and that's what we learned for the third one. We had to when we did the screen tests, uh, we had to." say to the actors hmm. there's there is uh, animals in this because i don't even sometimes i don't even consider a lobster an animal but it's not like you're bringing a whole sheep in it's like you have to, are you comfortable holding a lobster and of course that was fine but we had never checked the first time yeah um and 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 with the whole wokeism that 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 kind of element it's like you you're in the wrong so it's like well you you didn't ask me and it's not right and in fact the lobster shouldn't be in the performance like the stage manager 
was to kind of um, characterize themselves as an eco-vegetarian. And I was like, what does that mean? They said, well, I'm vegetarian when it suits the environment. And I was like, like, I don't even know what that means. (laughs) But she was like, this is cruelty to lobsters. And I was like... Uh, and I had wanted dead duck and a fish, a big massive salmon in this. So the dead duck, I think, well, I don't even think we were able to put the dead duck in the performance because I wanted one of the actors to swing the dead duck around by its neck during, and like that was absolutely not going to happen. Um, um, and it would have happened in the third performance. I absolutely guarantee you because the third performance would have been about, this is what's happening in the play. Are you comfortable with it? Yeah. If you're not, you don't need to be in the play. Um and so the lobster was the had to be dragged off on a golden blanket, uh, which I uh, it was the only way we we could have we could um, get it on on the stage and off the stage without someone touching it. But even the funny questions of like some of the the, the actors would ask me is, or was it the director asked me? It was like, uh, can it attack you? And I was like, no. I mean, have you ever encountered a lobster before? And I was like, can it run it? Can it jump at you? And I was like, I think I've watched too many too much Aliens and like uh, where you have those face hookers, which were probably modeled on, on a kind of lobster like thing yeah. and um like do we need to put it in a cage and i was like no i mean it well a it goes backwards so it's not going to run towards you and b it's probably more afraid of you than you are of it um but that relationship between food uh it, that's what i suppose the high the, the the play highlighted that was that that you have a breakdown between what you get to eat and where it comes from you know can i plant a seed in your head a friend of mine, Max Eastley, who featured on uh, Brian Eno's 10 ambient albums that he made back in the day. Um, I used to work with, uh, in the same building as Max and we became friends. And he did this performance called World Music. And ov- obviously you're thinking of world music, but it's actually world music. In mm-hmm. other words, it was items on pieces of string that he would swing around. Yeah, yeah, world. The world. Yeah. And... Um, he said that he was doing this performance and it's like you could hear this here whistling of this metal thing that he's whirling around. And then all of a sudden, deathly silence, followed by this almighty crash because the thing had flown off the string and landed in the back of the theatre, just missing somebody, uh, wow. somebody's head. So there you go, world duck. There you go, world duck, absolutely. Um, yeah, so they, 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 we fed, they got fed three times um, and... The, we had three different acts um, and um, yeah, I, I've, I've done readings of the play subsequently a, a few times. We did one reading of Food on the Edge this year uh, just to kind of open it to a, a new audience. Um, and um, it's, uh, yeah, it's always, it's, it's always interesting. We'll, we'll probably put it on, put it, put it on again um, at, at some, at some later date. But um, it's, as I said, like it, that whole aspect of my, um, of my life kind of influenced what we do in an ear and also influenced what we do at Food and the Edge, which is in a nutshell, it's a symposium that we started in 2015 in Galway where we bring, initially we brought 50 chefs. Now it's 50 food people, 50 people who are like kind of involved in food. It could be tech involvement. It could be producer involvement. It could be a winemaker. It could be a chef. It could be anyone. Um, we had a woman this year speaking about food in prisons. So that, that could, now it's, 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 it's gone very um, multi um multi-dimensional um and so that um it, it is it is influenced um that aspect and i think it has also tried to bring in a little bit more 
humanity and fun back to the restaurant in terms of particularly at the Michelin level sometimes it's just very serious it's very life or death like it's Michelin star restaurants every single night it's like the cup final you're you you can't lose everything is so serious and and the more stars you get, the more serious it gets. And uh, what uh, what stars are you? Oh, uh, just one star. Okay. And, uh, I say it's funny when you say just one star because you can only get one, two, or three. So, uh, because the more familiar people get with them, I, I actually said this recently, jokingly. You get described as, "Oh, you just have one star," as opposed to you have two. Um, or you just have two, then? Yeah, yeah. and it's and it's this pursuit of uh, so you can get one to three, and of course, the more stars, the more expensive, the more um, performative if you could actually say or theatrical it gets it's hmm. yeah and um and how do you get them um you you michelin are an independent guide who are associated with the tire company and they have um inspectors that go around and they inspect restaurants do you invite them no 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 they're completely independent so they just rock up they just rock up and the first time they pop into you and they but you don't know that they're there or you don't know who, who... i like i mean sometimes they it's quite obvious um other times it's not i mean sometimes it could be um you get a booking for a table of one with a british mobile phone number three months in advance and you're like this is very suspect now often at times it's not it could end up at being someone just coming to Galway on a conference but like that would be alarm bells but then sometimes they eat in twos and so you just don't know Uh, and some did you know that time and uh, so the, the first time they were in, no, I didn't. But the, but the first time they come in, uh, because there's an administrative, administrative side as well in terms of um, it's a guidebook and you need to be in the book. So the first time um, they come in, they after the meal, they introduce themselves and say, I am from the Michelin Guide. Uh, we want to include you in the guide. They don't say you're going to get a star in. You, you, you only find that out because there's places in the guide like Cava and in Galway like in Vicolo and Ordbia and there's there's regular restaurants in the guide that are just recommended um, so the guide is much more than uh, about than uh, its stars but unfortunately just that's all the media are interested in is the starred guides it's actually a hotel guide as well and um, there's loads of hotels in it um, and um, so you sign the, the pay, you sign the documents and that and um, then you you find we found out when everyone else found out it was 20 um 20 2012 um i can't remember now was it september or was it august um and um bizarrely i mean Galway didn't have a michelin star at the time um it had it had had one in Galway county in the past um but so it was like a avalanche hit in the restaurant like in terms of media international media um and um so it, it was very difficult to deal with because it wasn't something that we had prepared like it's not like we we um it, it's not like we set out to get a star and we had investors and backers and that's that's what happens a lot like investors build a restaurant they get a chef who's notable put him in they try and this is what we're trying to do we were opening a restaurant um that was ambitious, but we would have focused on Irish food and um, uh, what what you, what I'd call like new Irish cuisine in terms of like a much lighter approach to Ireland and interest in wild food, um, seaweeds, shellfish, um, and and trying to construct 
um, a food based on uh, or a cuisine based on the food of the island. Uh, so we don't use any spices or um, uh, imported vegetables or anything like that. So literally, we all we have is what you get from the Isle of Ireland. What, what Seasonal. Yeah. And then there's two exceptions because um, we don't produce sugar in Ireland anymore. We um, uh, Sugar, I think it's made in Germany, sucre was, was sold. And um, we don't produce a, a kind of um, a, a glutinous white flour. So they're the two things that we still use in the restaurant that are not Irish. But like 98% of what we do in the restaurant is um, is Irish. So say like oil, we only use rapeseed oil because that's the only oil that's produced in Ireland. So we don't use olive oil. Um, of course, we have plenty of butter. We don't need to worry about that. But this the, the seasonal aspect and the, the, the non-import, so we don't have oranges or lemons <laughs> or oranges. limes yeah we don't have oranges uh, or lemons or limes and some things are easy to 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 not not to use you can you can take spices you can you can um you can take them or leave them in in irish food um but some things are harder like um acidity like you need acidity in 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 food um it's like a basic component of a, of a dish so we we it took us a while to um to to get off the lemons um and we now we kind of make vinegars and season them with different um different flavored vinegar so we make a seaweed vinegar we make a, a wild leek vinegar and so di- di- just different forms of a uh, forms of acidity that still bring a little zing to the food but are more focused on on in ireland and are you doing all this research yourself and uh, now we have a, like the whole restaurant does it. Um, initially, there was um, uh, a number of us, our, our um, head chef, and um, yeah, I mean it was a kind of gradual um, process. You know, we've had we've had many chefs over the years, and 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 the um, it's a kind of project. You know, and it's it's. It, I always feel like we're never finished. Like it's it's always like we're always striving to, like. Um, to um, to get another product is like well how do we how do we replace like how do we use less sugar in in meals and you can you can do different things of course we use honey which is Irish you can you can start to um, juice beets or like uh, which is a sugar beet which is how we used to make um, sugar in Ireland um, and reduce that liquid down and you end up getting uh, like a, a sweet liquid that kind of tastes like turnips mm. but it's it's all it's a sugar mm. um, and um, so th- things like that and so we're always like I would say Inir is a, is a project um, that that uh, that tries to shine a light on on Irish food. And I mean, I was very, uh, very um, careful to say that it's not about authenticity. It's not that I believe this is the only way of making food in Ireland and that it's or or that it's more authentic because it's only using Irish ingredients. Ireland is an island and it has been subject to immigration and emigration for 8,000 years and so we've always had stuff on this island that is not from this island and mm. red wine has been here possibly since the Vikings maybe maybe it goes back even further to, to yeah. the to the Romans and so we've always had that and so there's aspects and yeah we serve we serve wine in the restaurant as well of course we serve lots of Irish drinks but we there's things that you you, you have to do to make a restaurant 
yeah. and um, and there's things that we want to do as part of the project. So it's it's a kind of um, compromise between the two, um, and um, it's, um, it's 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 no more authentic than. Um, a Brazilian restaurant in Ireland at the moment who's been run by a Brazilian guy who's using Irish pro, Irish produce but mixing it up with uh, his own cultural identity. There's still restaurants in Ireland and they just have a, I think all of them, and this comes from the academic side of me, they're all part of the, the discourse of food. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't think any one of them is more true than any other one. And I think that's the confusion that people, sometimes when they, when they think about an ear, they think, oh, this, it's this kind of, pursuit of truth or authenticity and it's not it's it's a it's a project to discover things and um um like like all the discoveries we've 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 done over over seaweed and wild food and 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 we've documented them in in two in two books uh to, to so other people can do them you know so it's not about us doing it and us being the kind of champions it's it's about us doing it and then hopefully other people will will do it as well and then because you can't create a culture just doing things yourself you know that's not a culture a culture is is about lots of different things happening you probably know about the black bee so the black bee is um indigenous specifically to the island of ireland but it only now currently exists in the iron islands okay because the honeybee or whatever i and i don't know yeah. uh, too much about it but my friend's uh, Paddy, I don't know his surname, and James Clenahan, or I've just made a television program due to be aired in in uh, TG Cahar on the 30th of December. And um, yeah, so the whole point is that the because this other bee came along, it's an invasive species and it's wiped out the black bee mm. and the, the invasive bee can't get to the Iron Islands. Yes, because of the distance, and it all takes is a you know a swarm or yeah, bee yeah, to yeah, go yeah. on a boat or whatever. But yeah. You, you could look into getting some of the honey. I can put you in touch with Oh, Patty. absolutely. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's always, every year, it's like that. We discover new products every single year. And, the, or, and then if someone starts making something, you go, this is really interesting. Um, the Like the brown flour, so much brown flour in Ireland, um, even though we produce quite a bit of flour, uh, brown flour is is imported. Mm-hmm. And you might you, you mightn't even know that you're actually using. And so like Irish brown flour is, is particularly difficult to use because it's much coarser. It's a much coarser grain. And we, so the flour we use is from Loud at the moment. And in, and and it's difficult sometimes in a restaurant when you're, sometimes the restaurant is, is for the pursuit of um, uh, taste. You know, so sometimes you have to make compromises mm-hmm. because it, there's no point in saying, oh, we're going to go all Irish if the product is 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 inferior in terms of taste. Mm-hmm. And so you have to make those decisions. And sometimes you make the decision to go for, I mean, inferior is the wrong word, but um, like even like there are certain restaurants in Ireland that only use French products because French products have a, a longer history and they're and they're best simply better that producing stuff that, that we produce in Ireland. But my argument is is always that um, if you don't start building, it'll it'll never happen. So sometimes it's 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 trying to get chefs to understand. Okay, listen, whether it's a pigeon or wild ducks or the uh, the game that we get is is um, is is less of a has less of a specification than 
the British one or the French one, we need to start trying to educate the the gamekeeper or that on what we want as opposed to simply just going, well, look, we'll just get it from France, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and even if it's cheaper, because that's the crazy thing. Like you, can, like you can get French butter is cheaper than Irish butter at the moment in Ireland. Wow. So loads of restaurants have switched to using French butter because it's cheaper. So it doesn't make any sense because we're 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 undermining the whole system in Ireland. We're making it really expensive to produce food. But is that not just down to efficiency of where it's made? Yeah, that, but it's also labor costs and there's a whole system in place. And, and what we're doing is we're heading towards like a Nordic model of of um, economy, say, and we're moving away from a kind of European uh, economy in terms of, say, France, Spain, Italy, where wages are lower, but the cost of food is lower. But we're 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 going towards this higher wage, higher cost of food, and that also means higher cost of food production. And so it's it's something that I think we need to be wary of because in the end, what it'll do eventually is that it will, um, everyone will have good wages on the island, but then all the food will stop making food. All the food will just be imported. And that's the way it is mostly with, um, say, vegetables at the moment. There are only about 100 commercial vegetable producers left in Ireland for 5 million, 6 million people. And that's because it is too expensive to grow vegetables in Ireland. And you cannot, because it's a global market, it's free market, you can't compete with someone bringing broccoli from Italy that's half the price of the broccoli in Ireland um, that is grown with sun, and we don't have less sun. So wh- what do you do? And we we have kind of got ourselves into a corner in Ireland where we are predominantly a beef and dairy country and we're built for export. Mm. And that's one of the one of the ironies is that that was that was the that was the British model for Ireland. Like it was literally, let's just grow a ton of cows and ton make a ton of butter mm. and sell it. And okay, we have we the only difference now is that we're in control and we're getting the we're reaping the benefit of it, but it's still creating a kind of monoculture where uh, unless you work with small farmers and go to farmers markets, which is really hard for people, like you, you still have to go to the supermarket, and it, it not everyone can just pop down to a farmers market, and so it, it it is really difficult sometimes. And like certain supermarkets are are, are better than others at champion um, Irish Irish food, but it's still a decision the consumer has to take. And if they if you look at broccoli from Ireland and Spain you go look I mean this one's cheaper and it's the same mm. it's got the same nutritional value it's very hard mm. to um to to take the moral high ground and go well everyone should be doing this you know I had a very interesting conversation with my brother-in-law who's not only a fisherman but also an engineer and he was explaining to me because there's a problem up north with Loch Ney. Mm. uh he was yeah, yeah. yeah he was basically saying it's a septic tank yeah and it's and it's been like that for the last 20 years. And the problem is that it's the land has been overfarmed. So um you know like runoff, yeah. Yeah, runoff. And it's going into the into, into the, the yeah. water. But that's their drinking water as yes. well. You were just mentioning there about how we are a beef and dairy country and we're exporting a lot of that. Like ninety six percent. Yeah. So I, we're using four percent 
of what we make. And even, so we're a net importer of potatoes in Ireland. So we wow. don't grow enough potatoes in Ireland, even though everyone goes, oh, you're Irish potatoes. Most of the potatoes that are consumed in Ireland are not from Ireland. But, but people just don't kind of, we don't focus on that. It's all about like Irish beef, this and Irish butter, that. And you go in and it's labeled and all that. When it comes to vegetables, we're like, oh, sure, they're just vegetables. What's your message to policymakers? I think we need a better balance. That's like, it's not going to be an either or, but we need a better balance. We need a more regenerative form of agriculture where farms are multidimensional, where farms, where it's not just one big cow farm, where you're going to do, see, we got rid of this kind of holistic farm model in the 20th century because we believed it to be underproductive. So we'd say, you do the cows, I'll do the chicken, you do the pigs, I'll do the vegetables. And what we realized was that not only is that counterintuitive, it's also really bad for the environment. And when you have a regenerative agriculture where you have different aspects and there's, and there's, there's it is working its way into the narrative around farming in Ireland. I don't know if it will if it will solve the problem, but it, we need it because if you have cows in the field all the time that are producing greenhouse gases and, and everything else, and, and you're not using that field for anything else, but if you have four fields simply and you're moving stuff around and you have the cows moved off and then you're growing something, you're, you're trying to pop stuff back into the soil. Um, and that is one, there's a guy doing it down in um, in um, in Offaly and um, it, people said he was crazy. They said, you can't, you can't, it, some of his is woodland. And they said, you can't have cows in the wood. And he was like, why can't you? And they were like, because oh, they have to be on fields. And he was like, why do they have to be on fields? Um, and stupidly, someone said to him, oh, they might get injured by a branch. And it's like, it's like, so, and it's working fine for him. And he has the, the animals mixed together and he's producing um, um, different, uh, different meats from turkeys to chickens to to pigs and, and cows. And we, we, I think we need more of that. Forgive me, why, what's the advantage of putting cows in woodland? Oh, because it's uh, it's less um, intensive than putting them on the fields and then eating uh, eating grass. And um, even though grass fed is is our whole um, our whole modus in Ireland, that that's what we sell it. It's that um, you have no um, uh, how do you just say like carbon requestering, like yeah. you know, like it's like they're um, uh, like when you when you have a woodland. So a woodland is it can request because there's trees in it, it can it can it can take carbon out of the atmosphere, whereas a field can't. So the methane versus you're the balance. Yeah, you're yeah. balancing it off. It's still going. There's still going to be methane, yeah. but you're 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 trying to balance. And like when you say when I say woodland, I'm not talking about an absolute massive forest. There might there still be grass in places, but what it is is that there's a it's a more balanced okay. uh, way. Um, but of course, if you said to any farmer said we'd put a lot of trees in your field he'd be like mm. why mm. but like we need that because that's what's holding carbon in because mm. every time the soil gets turned and, and the, another aspect of that farming is the that type of farming is uh is having a like a no dig philosophy mm. which is which is again counter to most common practices so some of our growers they have uh the um, the farm is never dug so it's the soil is never tilled um never dug up because that's what's releasing carbon so the soil is always uh compacted and what happens you put stuff over it and then you 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 transfer stuff into the field as opposed to 
conventional plowing um and uh, that's something again that um we we need to we need to look at because we've been plowing since the the plow was invented mm. um was it around the 7th or the 8th century and um uh, that's what's uh, disrupting the the soil you know you came up in my instagram feed because you just won an award please you do want to talk about uh, a little bit about the awards that you've got and what means the most to you yeah um i mean i'm i'm very irish when it comes to awards i, I like i i kind of you you ignore them when you don't get them and then when you get them you you ignore them as well um and like the various awards that the restaurants have got um i think i have a lifetime achievement award for from food and wine um for stuff that i've done for irish food and and you're what age 45 actually yeah Lifetime I, I know I, I felt weird I was like I'm, I, there's surely there's people who are older than me I mean I can't think I'd be or, or I think it was are they giving me a lifetime achievement award to actually just say would you would you go away and and let other people do things you know, I think it was Elvis Costello or maybe Tom Waits said there's three birthdays you need to celebrate 45 78 and 33 and a third okay <laughs> very good um uh, yeah, so the, I won uh, this this year the business person of the year from the Galway Chamber, um, Galway Chamber of Commerce. So yeah, it was quite unexpected because I mean I, I do this stuff and I, I never really have an end goal in mind. I'm not like I'm, I'm not a. Sometimes I think I'm not a very good businessman because I do things to do them for the process of doing them. And I, I never have an end goal in terms of what is the, what is the effect of this going to be? Like I do food in the edge, bring 50 chefs every year. Like what's the effect of that? The cumulative effect of now we've done it for 10 years. I mean, it's, it's like, well then you 500 chefs have come to Ireland that have never come before. And then they bring a piece of Ireland away with them. So there is a cumulative effect, but I, I kind of like to have that very kind of almost like a kind of Zen attitude to things that, you know, let the, let the kind of, is it, what's the expression? Like the pieces fall where they may. I mean, let, 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 let things happen where they may. Let's do this, event for um uh for the the, the 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 joy of doing it and that's the way i feel about the restaurant sometimes and it's only i suppose others who look upon what i do and say god you've been in business um 15 years in galway you've done x amount you've opened these restaurants you've brought these people to galway and then they they give you an award mm. uh and like it's it's very humbling uh, i think it's 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 nice to get recognition um i think i um um what's 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 the the best way of describing it i and i don't know if it's a particularly irish condition i mean it's certainly um um i think associated with um with the with the irish but i think it's that it's that um um, I think sometimes the reason I do so much is that I feel like I'm not doing enough. And I think that's I think that's particularly tied to the Irish psyche. And I don't know if it's because of colonization or if it's because of religion mm. where you're you're never good enough. Yeah. So you keep doing things. And and I almost feel sometimes that I, I don't take account of what I do. I don't sit down and write down everything I've done. How, how many hours of sleep do you get? Oh, but like too many. Like I love sleeping. Like I, I, I went to bed at like ten last night, and I got up at nine. Like that's, like that's the crazy amount of like. Yeah, people always say, "Do you sleep?" I was like, "I love sleep, but I can't function if I don't sleep." I just, I suppose, do a lot during during the day. Um, and but at the same time, um, I, I still don't feel, even though I'm. 
uh, always doing something. Um, I can bring it. I'm I'm currently writing a book for next year, and I'm producing a, a collection of my plays, uh, like ten years of my plays, because I just want to get them out and just get them into the out there and um um see what happens will will producers pick them up I'm, I'm always sending them to these competitions and the, or not competitions um when they have open calls and they never get picked up and not l- yet not yet and i look i'm always of the mind where like van gogh sold one painting in his whole lifetime mm. i'm not asking to be um a van gogh but all i'm saying is that you don't sometimes you don't know the relevance of what you do yeah. until after the fact mm-hmm. and I'm sure if you said to to Vincent when he was like saw that one painting, you know you're going to be really famous after you die. Yeah. He would have said that's not really that doesn't do me much good. Yeah. And so for me, I'm just doing these things, and I'm like I'm I'm happy doing them. Um, I think I still need to work on work life balance. I think the working too much is definitely um, a negative because I, if I can't sit down and relax, I'm just like if I go home, then I was like oh, I must work on the collection of plays or I must like um, paint a painting. I must like, or like, a, like a, as, as my partner says, like she has like two hours sleep on the couch and I've produced like a painting. And she's like, would you like, she's like saying you're such an overachiever. But I, I don't feel like I'm trying to compete. Uh, maybe I'm competing with myself. Do you have ADHD, do you think? Oh, absolutely. My two my two daughters have it and they've been diagnosed. So yeah. I, I say like, you know, I've never gone for the, the diagnosis, but def- I, certainly um, I, I, I think I have it. Yeah. I think I have it too. Yeah. It does lead to a surprising amount of production. Yeah. But then also I think other times it leads to uh, elements of your life that are like a, it's, it, it's ne- like an emotional neglect. I mm. do think sometimes I ignore the emotional aspects of my life. Uh, and I think that comes down to being Irish as well. And we mm. don't deal very well with emotions, but I think that I don't get involved in projects that are highly emotional and I, I never do, you know, and I think that's, there's an aspect of, of trying to protect myself. You know, you can, you can work on something and you don't have to worry about your life or other things. Whereas other people who might produce nothing might, I think might have a better quality of life and they might have be more emotionally happy to just go for a walk and I'm going like, well, if I go for a walk, I need to listen to an audiobook. Exactly. I'm the same. Yeah. I, I need, because if it's one hour, like I could get some learning in there, exactly. you know, and yeah. I, and that's probably not the best way to be, to be living sometimes, but that's, that's the way, way I am. And I just think that look, um, life is, is short and it's, uh, I'm, I'm lucky to, to be healthy and that. And so if I drive into Dublin and I think that I can learn something about neuroscience in the car on the way down, I go, I should look, I might just listen to that, yeah. that book. And, uh, uh, you listen to Sam Harris. Uh, actually, I have quite. I've listened to Sam quite a bit on yeah. occasion. Yeah, uh, Daniel Bennett, and that. I've listened to yeah, quite a few of those uh, guys. And um, I think what was the last? Actually, the last audiobook I listened to was um, uh, the one that won the Booker, uh, Paul Lynch's um, Prophet Prophet Song. And I listened to a. Uh, what is it? How to see the world? Nicholas uh, Murzoff. He's a kind of visual culture guy, but listen to them kind of simultaneously. I always have about fifteen audiobooks on the go, <laughs> and I I never. It depends on my mood. So I have the invitation to a Chinese banquet about an hour of that in and I have another, it's just, yeah, it's an absolute mess in terms of trying to 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 tie in what I, what my, my different interests. JP, I've still got a whole bunch of questions that I wanted to ask you and can we call this part one? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think we really need to give a shout out to John. 
Oh, 100%. John Ryan. Uh, definitely, John. And listen, I lived with John for a time when, uh, actually, and my my uh, my my wife, who we're separated now, but I met Dragine, um, where who was living with John and Ian and someone else, Gary, I think, in that house in, I think, 52A in Manu Park, I think. And yeah, look, it was, uh, the, I always think it was a very formative time. And I think that um, I, it's, I still look back at that period of um, uh, 15 to 25, as you know, as just um, a lot of influences and a lot of uh, ideas. So people are probably thinking, who on earth is John Ryan? Is he the guy from uh, Titanic? <laughs> because you know we, that uh, dance scene in um, Titanic, whenever she's downstairs in the in the working class areas, hmm. that's John Ryan's reel, it's called. Oh, yes, and, okay, okay. And, but John Ryan is a guy I worked with in China, and um, he's just a regular guy. He's a teacher, and he was in Brunei, and then he came over to China, and then he ended up in the same school that I was teaching at. That's one of, in fact, that's him up there. Do you see that poster? Ah. Queen Charlie Chaplin, The Life of Charlie Chaplin, set to the music of Queen. I, I wrote and directed that in China. And it was everybody's wearing black and white. There's 400 kids on stage. And the only person wearing colour, you can see in the middle there, wearing a red coat is John Ryan. Wow. Yeah, so John um, John explained to me that, you know, his friend owns a, owns a restaurant in Galway. And he, yeah, he said that. He, he I actually lent John because I was so intensely interested in Beckett and he was doing Beckett for his third year. I lent him a lot of books to, to get, to get, to get him out of a hole in his, in his exams. Um, so you need to get them back. No, I think he gave them back to me. Uh, the, oh, no, okay. yeah, absolutely. But, um, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was an interesting, um, uh, interest, interesting time. And, um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think the the older you get, the and the more people you collect along the way, and some people come in and out of your uh, out of your life. I always think it's it's interesting that you ne- you never know kind of um, what. Um, uh, what, what time people are going to come in but John always pops back in on occasion when he comes to go away yeah, um, yeah. and uh, and it's as as with Ian as well because the two of them shared a room in college Ian and John and they were kind of inseparable uh, uh, at the time so um, he's got a, a real acerbic wit yes it's fantastic yeah so um, may I just finish with this what restaurants do you have in Galway or even in Ireland? No, just in just in Galway, we have a near restaurant uh, which is on Dominic Street. Uh, is that go- how you say it? A near, a near, yeah. Okay. It's, it's um, like on ear, the west. Right. Uh, it always when Irish Irish Gaelgors come in, they always say it differently. So I'm not a n i a r. I'm not a Gaelgor, so um, mm-hmm. like a chocked near is coming from the west, mm-hmm. um, and then we have Cava. Which is over on Middle Street uh, in the city centre, and a very popular um, Spanish restaurant that we opened um, first. And we've we've had other restaurants in during those fifteen years that have opened and closed, and um, other other food projects. So I'm never never one to say I won't do another food project. I'm I'm a very interested in food and wine and um, lots of different things. And I lo- I love food as a as a vehicle for culture, you know. And I think that's that that's what keeps me going sometimes it's not food in and of itself but it's food to to bring people together you know and we had the last place we had that we unfortunately had to close tartar we had two events we had tartar talks theater and we used to bring a theater professional in once a month to talk to, to try and 
to 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 cut into other spaces because people are just always coming into a restaurant and they eat and it's like how do you how do you how do you change people's minds when they're eating and and then we also had wine and design where we'd pair a winemaker with a design maker and one we did one uh, was great we did uh, our, the tattooist from across the road who has tattooed me loads of time with a uh, with a local uh, beer maker and it was just they both did talks and and we're not looking to to what's the correspondence between the two we're just looking to for steve to do a talk and then tom to do a talk about how he makes his beer and then for let the again let, just see what happens and uh, it's nice you know these collaborative uh, collaborative ventures so what I would say to anybody listening, if you want to eat in these restaurants, call your cousins up north of the border, get them to book the restaurant three months in advance, yes, and you're going to get great a great service. Yeah, well, listen, you'll you'll get you'll get some looks, definitely. <laughs> you'll always get some. I always joke saying to people, if you're if you're if you're eating alone, just give a British mobile phone number and book a few weeks in advance, and and just always kind of keep look, just keep looking uh, at uh, at, the, at everyone at the servers and the chefs and listen you'll keep them on their toes <laughs> brilliant okay well go to my foil. thanks very much Fender this has been a Solid Hill Media original podcast and production 